Iskan founder Acharya Shilpapada ki jai, Nantikoti Vaishnavrinda ki jai, Acharya Shilharidas Thakur ki jai, Rame Shikoha Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Dvaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhaktarinda ki jai, Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogopina Shamakunda Radha Pandagiri Govardhan ki jai, Vrindavan Dhamma ki jai, Matura Dhamma ki jai, Nabadweep Mayapur Dhamma ki jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma ki jai, Gangamaya Tiruna Devi ki jai, Bhakti Devi ki jai, Tulsi Maharani ki jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda ki jai, Jor Premanande, all glories to the assembled devotees, all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prashtaya Vidalai, Sri Mate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nichinamani, Namaste, Saraswati Devi, Gauravani Pachami, Nivasesa Sindhavani, Vaskachaya Satani, Vandeham Sri Guru, Sri Uttapadakamalam, Sri Guru, Vaishnavamascha. Shivam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajiva Sadvaitam Sadhitam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitam Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Ravita Shri Shatam Vitamsha Anama Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Bhagavate Vasudevaya it's September 19, 2013, in Honolulu, Hawaii. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 8, Prayers by Queen Kunti and Griffith Save, Text 29. Naveda Kaschid Bhagavantam Chichikshitam Naveda Kaschid Bhagavan Shakirshitam Tave Hamanasya Nirnam Vidambanam Tave Hamanasya Nirnam Vidambanam Nayasya Kaschid Dayito Sikarhichid Nayasya Kaschid Dayito Vaishas Chayasmin Vishamamatir Nunam Vaishas Chayasmin Vishamamatir Does not Does not Veda Veda No No Kaschit Kaschit Anyone Anyone Bhagavan Bhagavan O Lord O Lord Chikirshitam Chikirshitam Pastimes Pastimes Tava Your Tava Ihamanasya Ihamanasya Like the worldly men Like the worldly men Ninam Of the people in general Of the people in general Vidambanam Vidambanam Misleading 
misleading. Nah. No. Never. 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 Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. His. His. Paschit. Paschit. Anyone. Anyone. Daita. Daita. Object of specific favor. Object of specific favor. Asti. Asti. There is. There is. Karhichit. Karhichit. Anywhere. Anywhere. Dvesha. Dvesha. Object of envy. Object of envy. Cha. Cha. And. Yasmin. Yasmin. Unto him. Unto him. Vishama. Partiality. Matihi. Conception. Conception. Nirnam. Nirnam. Of the people. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. O Lord, no one can understand your transcendental pastimes, which appear to be human and are so misleading. You have no specific object of favor, nor do you have any object of envy. People only imagine that you are partial. Purport. The Lord's mercy upon the fallen souls is equally distributed. He has no one as a specific object of hostility. The very conception of the personality of Godhead as a human being is misleading. His pastimes appear to be exactly like a human being's, but actually they are transcendental and without any tinge of material contamination. He is undoubtedly known as partial to his pure devotees, but in fact he is never partial, as much as the sun is never partial to anyone. By utilizing the sun rays, sometimes even the stones become valuable, whereas a blind man cannot see the sun, although there are enough sun rays before him. Darkness and light are two opposite conceptions, but this does not mean that the sun is partial in distributing its rays. The sun rays are open to everyone, but the capacities of the receptacles differ. Foolish people think that devotional service is flattering the Lord to get some special mercy. Factually, the pure devotees who are engaged in the transcendental loving service of the Lord are not a mercantile community. A mercantile house renders service to someone in exchange for values. The pure devotee does not render service unto the Lord for such exchange, and therefore the full mercy of the Lord is open for him. Suffering and needing men, inquisitive persons or philosophers make temporary connections with the Lord to serve a particular purpose. When the purpose is served, there is no more relation with the Lord. A suffering man, if he is pious at all, prays to the Lord for recovery. But as soon as the recovery is over, in most cases the suffering man no longer cares to keep any connection with the Lord. The mercy of the Lord is open for him, but he is reluctant to receive it. That is the difference between a pure devotee and a mixed devotee. Those who are completely against the service of the Lord are considered to be an abject darkness. Those who ask for the Lord's favor only at the time of necessity are partial recipients of the mercy of the Lord, and those who are cent percent engaged in the mercy of the Lord are full recipients of the mercy of the Lord. Such partiality in receiving the Lord's mercy is relative to the recipient, and it is not due to the partiality of the all-merciful Lord. When the Lord descends on this material world by his all-merciful energy, he plays like a human being, and therefore it appears that the Lord is partial to his devotees only. But that is not a fact. Despite such apparent manifestation of partiality, his mercy is equally distributed. 
In the battlefield of Kurukshetra, all persons who died in the fight before the presence of the Lord got salvation without the necessary qualifications, because death before the presence of the Lord purifies the passing soul from the effects of all sins, and therefore the dying man gets a place somewhere in the transcendental abode. Somehow or other, if someone puts himself open in the sun rays, he is sure to get the requisite benefit both by heat and by ultraviolet rays. Therefore, the conclusion is that the Lord is never partial. It is wrong for the people in general to think of him as partial. Naveda Kashjid Bhagavan's Chikirshitam Tave Hamanasya Nirnam Vidambanam Nayasti Kashjid Daitos Dikarkichid Dveshas Chayasmin Vishama Matir Nirnam O Lord, no one can understand your transcendental pastimes, which appear to be human and are so misleading. You have no specific object of favor, nor do you have any object of envy. People only imagine that you are partial. So generally, the living entities in this world uh, either say there's no God, at least at the present time in Kali Yuga, or they blame God for their misfortune. Uh, and they think, as Prabhupada says here in the purport, they think religion means that you flatter God. You go to God and you say, oh, you're great, you're wonderful, and then God will give you what you want. Right? That's what they think religion is, is made out of. And they think God's like an ordinary person who likes some people and doesn't like other people. It's interesting, Prabhupada, in lecturing on this verse, says that our general condition in this world is envy. The word is here, dvesha, envy. What does envy mean? Envy means that I want what you have. You know, I don't want you to have it. I want to have it. I mean, the ultimate expression of envy is stealing. You know, I want to have it instead of you. Now, if somebody steals from you, they're your enemy, yes? They wish you harm. They wish to profit at your loss. They want some harm for you. So what we can say is that envy is a kind of malice. It's a kind of, I, I want harm for the others. And Prabhupada says the general mentality in this world of a conditioned soul is envy. But sometimes, if somebody is doing something nice for us, we'll temporarily be their friend. And you can see how temporary this is. You know, we can be nice to someone, nice to someone, nice to someone, and it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much for us to, you know, wish harm for them. Even in a family. You know, it doesn't take much for people to get into an argument and say mean things to each other that's going to hurt the other people's feelings. That we're trying to steal the happiness from the other person. You know, you, you didn't fix the front door for me when you said you would. And therefore, we think it's fine to insult the other person and, and say nasty things to them. And, you know, I don't know why I'm with you. But that's envy. That's envy. So, you know, our, our friendship with people is like, okay, I'm friends with you because right now you're pleasing me. But if you don't please me anymore, then I'm going to harm you in some way. And we think that Krishna is like that. We think that Krishna, we think God is an ordinary person and that God uh, basically wants harm for others. He wants to send everybody to eternal damnation. You know, he's... he's he, He's the cause of all the suffering in the world. But if you flatter him and you're nice to him and you do something for him, then maybe he'll be your friend. And you've got to kind of keep it up. You know, if you mess up, 
and you do something sinful, you mess up somehow, and you forget to flatter him that day, you miss your, your daily flattery, then he'll also immediately become your enemy again. Uh, that's what people think that, that God is like. And therefore they blame God. And they say God is responsible for all the suffering in the world. It's Krishna's fault even that I'm not Krishna conscious. I mean, you'll see this a lot, even among uh, devotees. That, well, the reason I'm not Krishna conscious is Krishna's just not merciful to me. Krishna's merciful to that one and he's not merciful to me. He likes that person better than he likes me. Somehow it's Krishna's fault. I'm doing everything right. And, you know, the fact that I'm not fully Krishna conscious, that I don't see Krishna everywhere, and that I'm not fully in ecstasy all the time, that's Krishna's problem. Uh, but that's not the fact. One of the themes, one of the main themes, running themes in the Bhagavatam, is that Krishna is not partial. That he's not partial. That Krishna wants to give his full mercy to everyone. That Krishna doesn't envy anyone. Nor does Krishna particularly favor anyone. Krishna doesn't say, well, I'm going to favor you because you flatter me, or I'm going to favor you because you do things for me. Krishna has equal love for everyone. And Krishna wants the best for everyone all the time. Krishna wants to give the highest thing to everyone all the time. In the descriptions of the spiritual world, you find that many of the devotees there, they have these liberations where they have equal opulences with the Lord. They have the same bodily features as the Lord. You know, an envious person would not want that. An envious person, if, they, if they're rich, they don't want their neighbors to be quite as rich as they are. You know, people are in sporting competitions, they want to be first. If they're second, you know, if somebody wins second place in the Olympics, they're despondent. Isn't that funny? You know, out of, out of all the athletes in the world, you're good enough to even go to the Olympics, and then you get the second place or the third place, and then you're depressed. Why wasn't I the first? No, but Krishna's not like that. Krishna's not like that. Krishna likes to share his opulences with all of the living entities. And we see that a little bit in this world between, say, parents and children or husband and wife. That we, we may see some arrangement where parents want to share all their opulences with their children or even give their children more. So we can have some idea of what Krishna feels like. So Prabhupada talks about the degrees of our receiving Krishna's mercy. And he compares it to the sun. So just like the sun is shining equally, the sun isn't discriminating. But if you stay in your room with the curtains down, you know, or if you stay up all night and you sleep all day, then you don't get the benefit of the sun. But that's not the sun's fault. And Prabhupada says even a stone, by utilizing the sun, can become valuable, whereas a human being who's blind is not able to get the benefit of the sun. So even something very unqualified, what's more unqualified than a rock? You know, but by, by being in the sun, the rock can become qualified. And a human being who's very qualified, if they're not able to see, they don't get the benefit of the sunlight, at least not in terms of light. So Prabhupada's giving a three levels of receptivity here. One level is those who are just atheists, who ignore God, who say, you know, I don't want anything to do with you. Complete, Prabhupada says those who are completely against the service of the Lord are in abject darkness. So those who say, there's no God, I'm just this body, this life is just for my own enjoyment, I'm just here to get whatever I can, God is irrelevant. Uh, they're not getting any of the mercy of the Lord at all. They're getting nothing. 
but that's because they don't want it. They're not at all receptive to it. And again, we see people like this in our personal dealings with ourselves. I'm sure we see people in our own lives that we want to help, we want to be friends with, we want to be kind to, and they reject us completely. Yes? Have we had people like that in our lives? It's completely, totally reject us. And they may condemn us even. And then we can't help them. I'm sure we all have people like this in our lives. We have the ability to help them. We have the capacity to help them. We have the willingness to help them. We have the openness to help them. But they have zero receptivity to our help. And if we try to help them, it's like we come to a, we hit a barrier. We hit some kind of, you know, help-proof barrier. (laughs) And where the person is just not receptive. So those who are against the mercy of the Lord are like that. The Lord's capacity to help is there. The Lord's willingness to help is there. But they're blocking it. And they're blocking it completely. And this can happen even to those who are in a spiritual process. Even to those who are apparently following some spiritual process. They can be completely blocking the mercy of Krishna. Especially if one's committing offenses. If one is is offensive to the devotees, this is not just if one's offensive to the Lord, but if one's offensive to the devotees, if one's always going around criticizing the devotees, then it's like you put up a a mercy-proof glass around yourself. And so even though you're right there in the presence of the Lord and you're, you're right there in the presence of the Holy Name, it's not really having any effect. Prabhupada talked about lighting a fire and pouring water on it at the same time. So, you know, with one hand you're lighting the fire and the other hand you're pouring water and so there's nothing ever happens. So therefore we talk about the ten offenses on chanting the holy name. And if one's committing these offenses, especially certain ones of these offenses, especially sinning on the strength of chanting, especially disobedience of the order of the guru and especially offending the devotees. So if one's going on, you know, this devotee did this and this devotee did that and that devotee did the other thing, and this, especially if it's not true. You know, if you're speaking lies against the devotees or you're physically attacking the devotees. But even if you're talking about things that are true, just to go around criticizing. I mean, we can think of in an ordinary family, an ordinary materialistic family. So if there's more than one child, and if if one child is criticizing the other child, so the parents withdraw their sweet dealings. Yes? They'll say, hey, you have to apologize to your brother. Tell your brother you're sorry. No, I'm not going to tell them I'm sorry. Well, then go in your room, you know. (laughs) Go in your room and think about it and come out when you're ready to say you're sorry, isn't it? They may even tell you to leave the table. There's all the food there. Everybody's eating. You know, there's a lot of time spent in the cooking. And the parents want that all the children are eating. That they prepared the food for the children to enjoy, for the children to be healthy. You know, but if one of the children says to the other, why are you eating so much? Hey, you took the... So the parents may say, leave the table. Leave the table, go to your room. Come back when you're ready to behave. So although the food is there, it's not available to the child. Is that the parent's partiality? No, it's not the parent's partiality. So Krishna, one can go on, we say this, you know, in many of our temples we say this through the morning, one can go on chanting the holy name for many, many births and still not achieve love of God. 
Whereas Prabhupada said Krishna consciousness can be available in one minute. So in the Bhagavatam it says that if one, if one is chanting the holy name of the Lord and even experiencing symptoms of ecstasy, but one's heart doesn't melt in love, then you can understand you have a steel-framed heart. And Robert says in the purport, this is indicative that one's committing offenses. And Vishnu Chakravati Thakur in Madhuri Kadambadi says a person may claim, I'm not committing any offenses. Like sometimes I'll hear a devotee say, someone said to me fairly recently, in fact, well, I've never done anything really wrong. And I looked at this devotee and I said, can we be honest here? So, you know, we may say, well, I'm not doing anything really wrong. But the symptom, if the symptom is that I'm not experiencing love of God, that I haven't realized who I am, I haven't realized my eternal nature, then I'm doing something wrong. I'm blocking the mercy of the Lord. It's not that God is partial. It's not that one person, you know, two people side by side are following the process, and one person is making advancement and one isn't because Krishna likes, you know, their nose better or something like that. Or that person flattered him more, you know, that person brought more sticks of incense or something. If I just buy the best kind of incense, we think I'm going to bribe Krishna. So the atheists and the offenders, they're not getting anything, they're just in darkness. Then the next category Prabhupada talks about here is somebody whose relationship with the Lord is mercantile, it's business. Just like generally we go to the doctor when we're sick. Maybe we also go for a health checkup, but generally we go when we're sick. And when we're not sick, we don't go. Most of us don't have a relationship with our doctors outside of them being doctors. I mean, we might. It might sometimes one has a doctor who's also one's friend or a friend who also happens to be one's doctor. But generally speaking, we go to the doctor when we need some relief from disease. And after we're relieved from the disease, we pay our money and we go. And if we don't get relief from the disease, we also go. We go to the doctor. If the doctor doesn't cure us, we say, useless doctor, and we leave. Now, I, w- I once went through many, many years of medical treatment, and I got somewhat better, but not entirely better. And I said to the doctor, I said, suppose you had like a radio and you took it into the shop. I calculated I'd been there like 30-something times. I said, suppose you'd taken the radio to the shop 30-some times to have it fixed, and it was still broken. What would you do? My implication was there's something wrong with the repairman, right? And he looked at me and he said, you'd throw it away and get a new one. I said, well, that's not really an option here. So if you you go to the, the doctor and you don't get well, then you leave, you go to another doctor. Or you go to the doctor and you get well, then you also leave. You know, or a shop, Robert talks about a mercantile situation. You know, if you go to the store, you go to buy something, you go to buy oranges. Now, after you buy your, you know, you pay your money and you leave. And if there's no oranges, you also leave. So people go to God, you know, God, please do this, please do that, please do the other thing. And if, it, if he doesn't do it after, you know, a certain amount of time, depending on who you are, how long you're going to wait, you know, if the store says, well, are you going to get some oranges? Do you have oranges in the back room? You know, you may be a little pushy about it. So if a person's willing to be a little pushy and patient, they may say, God, you know, please make me a millionaire, please make me a millionaire, please make me a millionaire. And they may wait for a while. Uh, but if it doesn't happen, they'll leave. Oh, forget about this guy. Forget about this guy. I was reading a, a story about this, this woman who was a very religious Christian. She and her husband were both 
big people in their local church. And then one day her husband died of a heart attack uh, in the church, and then she became an atheist. Right? Uh, so that's the, the typical thing, you know, okay, I'm worshiping you, you're not going to give me what I want, so forget it, I'm going. Or I get what I want and then I go. You know, I go to the Lord, please cure my Aunt Sally of cancer, please cure, and then your yeah, Aunt Sally's pleasant, um, cured, and then you don't go anymore. I told the story many times how my god sister Kalunga and I were walking in London, we were taking a Joppa walk, and this one woman came up to us and said, can you tell us how to get to such and such place? And Kalungana said, well, we're going that way. Why don't you walk with us? So she walked with us. And then Kalungana started preaching to her, which embarrassed me to the moon, and started telling her that she should chant Hare Krishna and she should worship Krishna. I kept thinking, oh, why doesn't she be quiet? <laughs> and this woman said, well, I don't have any problems in my life. Why should I pray to God? If I have a problem, I'll pray to God. So that's the mercantile mentality. You know, if I have a problem, I'll go to God. If he doesn't solve my problem, I'll leave and go someplace else. And if he does solve my problem, I'll say thank you very much, and then I'll also leave. So those people, Prabhupada says, are partial recipients of the mercy of the Lord. They're getting something. And most people in most religious systems in the world are in this mentality. The vast majority of people in the religious systems of the world, whether it's the Hare Krishna movement or whether it's your local Baptist church or whatever, have this mentality that I'm here to get something. And Krishna talks about the four things that people want to get. They want to get material prosperity. I want to become rich. I want to become famous. You know, I want to become beautiful. Whatever. I want to pass my exam. I was, I was once in one of our temples and there was this uh, teenage girl by the altar praying fervently. What are you praying for? I'm praying that I'm going to pass my exam. <laughs> what was really, really funny is she'd already taken the exam, and she had the exam results in an envelope, and I thought, well, it's kind of too late now, you know. <laughs> she was putting this envelope in front of the deities. <laughs> Please make it, be a, make it be a high scorer, you know. <laughs> so uh, this is the general mood. Uh, give me something, give me something. And then the other one is get rid of something. So the first one is, give me something I don't have. And the second one is, get, get rid of something I do have. You know, get rid of some disease. I have some disease. Please get rid of the disease. Make me healthy. Or, I have a very difficult spouse. Please make them a nice person. You know, please, please make my wife be nice to me. You know, tell her to stop yelling at me. Or, you know, tell my boss to stop yelling at me. Or... You know, please, Krishna, give us a new temple president. I don't like the one we have now, or something like that. You know, get rid of something. Get rid of something in my life. Get rid of something that's suffering for me. And the next one is uh, satisfy my curiosity. You know, I want to know, who are you? What's the world about? Who am I? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Satisfy my intellectual curiosity. And you'll also see people who leave after their intellectual curiosity is satisfied. I've seen people come to the Hare Krishna movement, you know, become very philosophically knowledgeable, and once their philosophical curiosity is satisfied, they leave. Well, I got what I wanted. You know, like you go to the library and you get a book and you ask the librarian some questions and then you leave. And the last one, which is very, very rare, is a person who's already Brahman realized, who's already realized that God is everywhere and in everything, 
and is coming for not just intellectual curiosity, but for advanced spiritual knowledge, is, is coming for enlightenment. Uh, that category also may be coming for ultimate liberation, not just freedom from disease or freedom from poverty or freedom from a difficult spouse, but, but liberation and, and spiritual bliss. So that's, that's more rare that a person is coming like that. And Krishna says that person is, he says, is verily like myself. He said all these people are piousos, but that person is verily like myself. But even that person is only a partial recipient of the Lord's mercy. Because that's not really the greatest benediction that the Lord has to offer us. You know, we were reading the other day about how Sanatana Goswami kept the touchstone in the in the rubbish heap, of course, Prabhupada said it was, couldn't have been his. If it was his touchstone, he would have used it for service. He wouldn't have kept it in the rubbish heap. But uh, the, the real thing was not the touchstone. The real thing was love of God. So the real thing that Krishna has to give us is not material prosperity. I mean, Krishna wants to give material prosperity even to the conditioned souls. Prabhupada talks about how a Krishna-conscious society will also be a prosperous society how invaded times when people were devotees of the Lord, that the planet was full of fruits and flowers and clean water and fresh air and people had good health and they lived for a long time. So Krishna wants even the material things for the devotees. But that's not his real benediction. Nor is his real benediction getting free from our distress. Nor is his real benediction a wonderful philosophy that satisfies our intellectual curiosity. Nor is the real benediction even spiritual bliss of liberation. But the real benediction is an exchange of love. That's the real benediction, because that's the only thing. That's the only thing that can really satisfy the self. I mean, you can think of it even materially, that if somebody has you know, a lot of money and a lot of fame and a beautiful house, Yesterday we went to a program at this incredibly beautiful house. Just amazing, amazing place. You really felt like you were on another planet. It was so beautiful. You know, but even if you have the most beautiful house, etc., 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 and you have a healthy body, and you don't have any, like, problems in your life, if you don't have loving relationships, your life is empty. You know, and the other things get boring really soon. You can, you can have a, a beautiful body, a, a healthy body, and a beautiful home, and lots of money. But very, very soon, they just become ordinary. You don't even notice them anymore. I give the example all the time of the temple in Detroit, which used to be the mansion of Lawrence Fisher. And the place had 24 karat gold in the floor. There were like indentations in the floor, in the tile, and it was filled with 24 karat gold. Of course, after people walked in the place for a while, it would wear down. So by the time we got it, the only place you'd see gold in the floor was around the edges of the rooms where people didn't walk. Gold in the floor, you know, walking on gold. The place was incredibly beautiful. I mean, we used to get tours all the time just to see the building. But, you know, the, when you first, the first day you went there, you looked around and went... Wow. And after a week, you said, wow. And after a month, you didn't even notice it anymore. It just became normal. This is one of the reasons we're called conditioned souls. We get conditioned, we get accustomed to whatever circumstance we're in. It, it, 
it doesn't give the same kick anymore. Have you noticed this with everything? You know, you, you buy something new and it's, it's all exciting and, and after a while it's just what you have. You know, that's why very, very rich people, they only wear clothes for one or two times. And then they, they give them away. Things become boring. So what really gives us ongoing happiness is loving relationships. Therefore, that's the real mercy of the Lord. The real mercy of the Lord is something that's, real, that's actually, truly, deeply going to satisfy us. And when you have a loving relationship with God, who's unlimitedly interesting, you know, even our loving relationships here become boring, isn't it? They don't give the same kick either. You have some romantic relationship, and in the beginning it's amazing. And after a while, it's just, again, part of your life. It fades into the background. But with Krishna, it's not like that. Krishna's unlimited. And he's unlimitedly expanding, and he's unlimitedly interesting, and he's unlimitedly full of surprises. You never quite know what he's going to do. <laughs> so that's the only thing that's really going to satisfy the self, and that's the complete mercy of the Lord, is this loving exchange between ourself and Krishna in our original relationship to reawaken, to revive our particular individual relationship with Krishna as one of Krishna's lovers or friends or parents or, or servants, that we have a very particular relationship with Krishna that we really want and that, that fully satisfies us. And that's the mercy that Krishna is trying to give us. And he would like to give it to us right now in fact, Krishna is very anxious to reestablish that relationship with us. And the Brihad Bhagavatamrita, when Gopakumar goes to the spiritual world, he goes gradually, step by step, and when he goes to the spiritual world, the Lord says to him, he says, life after life, I was dancing like a fool, thinking, will he turn to me in this life? Will he turn to me now? Will he turn to me now? Will he turn to me now? He said, in life after life, you had no interest in me. He said, so I was wondering, how can I bring this soul back without violating my laws of karma? Because Krishna doesn't like to violate his own laws, otherwise everything would go into chaos. He explains that in the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita. So the Lord said to Gopakumar, so I arranged for you to take birth at Govardhan. So that wasn't violating karma, but it gave him spiritual assets. And in that way, he could go back to home, back to Godhead. So Krishna's mood is... When is he going to come? When is he going? Just like the way we feel if we have somebody that we love who's rejected us and we still care about them. And then we're always thinking, when can I reestablish this relationship? When can I reestablish relationship, right? And we may try to call them and then they don't answer the phone. We just get voicemail, you know, or they hang up on us or something like that. So Krishna's like that with us. When are they going to answer the phone? When are they going to come and see me? When are they going to come and see me for me? So if we come and see Krishna for selfish purposes, he's so amazing that even then he gives us some mercy. If I had somebody that I loved who rejected me and cheated on me and, and lied to me, and then they came to see me just to get some money, I probably would just throw them out the door. But Krishna is so kind and so non-envious that even though we've rejected him, if we come to Krishna even for money, if we come to Krishna for name and fame, even if we come to Krishna for some ulterior motive, he's like, well, at least you came to me. 
I mean, Krishna's so non-envious that if you say, I'm going to the sin of Rama, he gets excited. And says, oh, they said the name Rama. We were out on Harinam the other night, and this one man said, those Hare Krishnas are cheaters, those Hare Krishnas are cheaters. And Krishna's happy that he's saying Hare Krishna. He gives him some credit. Yeah, it's amazing. So the key here, which is emphasized over and over and over and over again in the scripture, is the problem is us, and we have to become receptive. It's all around us. Krishna is all around us. He's willing, he's ready, but we're not receptive. We're blind. We're not seeing what's around us. We're not experiencing what's around us. And again, we all have examples of this in our own life. If we're really upset about something, we can be in a beautiful place and not even notice. We're not even aware of it. We we all have fully the capacity of being almost completely unaware of blessings and benedictions around us according to our own personal frame of mind. We can be sitting at the most delicious banquet and if we have something else on our mind, we don't even notice that there's food in front of us. We don't even, or we're eating, we don't even taste it. So Krishna is all around us. His mercy is all around us. He's in our heart. He's in our heart. He's in every atom. He's in our breath. He's in our digestive fire. He's, He's everywhere. And the gift he's trying to give us is our, our original loving relationship with him. But even devotees, they'll say, you know, I'll say, well, just someday, you know, you'll have this revived and you'll remember who you are in the spiritual world. And even devotees will say, oh, me? No, I, I can't do that. Well, why not? That's what Srila Prabhupada's come to give us. You know, not only Krishna, I mean, here we're talking about Krishna, but the pure devotees are also not partial. Srila Prabhupada's not partial. Shri Prabhupada doesn't envy anybody. It's not that Srila Prabhupada's mercy is, is only given to the people he directly initiated, and that Srila Prabhupada's mercy is not available now. And it's not that Srila Prabhupada showed more mercy to the people who traveled with him as his servants or the people that he spent a lot of personal time with. That, that's not a fact. His mercy is equally distributed. And we've seen that people even who never met Srila Prabhupada have become you know, sometimes very, very advanced devotees and people who traveled with Prabhupada and maybe didn't become very advanced devotees. That's with Lord Chaitanya also. He traveled with that Krishna Das. Krishna Das was his personal servant and yet he had so much difficulty. And yet there were others who met Lord Chaitanya even just for a moment and became ecstatic in love of God. So the, the onus is on us. It's not, it's not, Krishna's not at fault. And we can become Krishna conscious in a moment. As soon as we become fully receptive, then we can become fully Krishna conscious. So at least, at least we can try to gradually increase our receptivity. If we say, okay, becoming fully receptive in a moment is, is beyond what I'm willing to do, then at least how can I increase my receptivity? How can I increase the quality and or quantity of my dealings with Krishna? And to have this goal of entering into a loving relationship with Krishna, that's the goal. They say if you don't know where you're going, you, you probably won't get there. <laughs> so if, if we think the goal is just that I'm going to have a, you know, a happy life or I'm going to have knowledge or I'm going to have liberation, then we're, then we're not also receptive. 
We're not coming to get what Krishna is really offering us. We're going to Sanatana Goswami for a touchstone instead of the holy name. Krishna is offering us something that will fully satisfy us forever. And that's what he wants from us. Even we may say Krishna will test us and so many things, but all that is to give us what we want and what, and what he wants. So the Bhagavatam is emphasizing this over and over again because it's such an important thing, we, we can't get it through our head. You know, we just don't want to accept it. So why don't we want to accept this? Why don't we want to accept that it's, it's our receptivity? Why do we want to blame Krishna? Because as soon as we accept that it's our receptivity, we'll become humble. Yes? If I really accept that there's unlimited, unlimited spiritual ecstasy that will fully satisfy me in this moment and forever, and that unlimited spiritual ecstasy and eternal life and full knowledge and my original spiritual body, which is ever youthful and beautiful and powerful and wonderful and full of all good qualities without any faults, is available to me right now, this second. And it's available from somebody who wants more than anything else to give that to me. Then my conclusion would have to be that I am the greatest idiot. There's just no other, there's no other conclusion. Then I have to be the biggest possible fool that could ever exist ever anywhere. But as long as I blame Krishna, well, I can maintain some pride. Well, I'm a good person, and I don't really do anything really wrong, and I'm, I'm following the process, and I'm this, and I'm that, and, and it just, well, it takes a long time. What can I do? Krishna made it take a long time. It's his fault. That's Krishna saying it takes many births and deaths, so that's, you know... His fault, I'm doing the best I can. So that's why we don't see this. Because if we see this, if we see how the mercy is right there, then we'd have to also see ourselves honestly. Therefore, Sanatana Goswami says also in Briya Bhagavatamrita that prema, love of God, and humility go together. In order to receive that mercy, I have to acknowledge that I am the block. Does this also make sense to everybody? I cannot receive that mercy. I cannot become receptive to that mercy unless I understand that the receptivity is in my hands. And if I understand the receptivity is in my hands, then I have to see that I'm the one blocking it. And if I see that I'm the one blocking it, I have to see that I'm, as the Acharyas will say, the greatest sinner of all sinners. They don't mean, when they say I'm the greatest sinner of all sinners, they don't mean, you know, I've gone around raping and murdering 10,000 people. You know, we may read that and say, huh, how are they the greatest sinner? But who's a greater sinner than somebody who has the best thing being offered to them at every moment and who rejects it? Who's a greater fool than that? You can't be a greater fool. It's not possible. So, at least if we're not ready for the, if we're not willing for the whole thing in the next two seconds, then at least we can make a step and at least we can acknowledge that 
it's up to us to make those steps. It's in our hands. If we're not ready for everything in this second, that means that we're afraid. Basically, we don't have enough faith. We think that if I made myself fully receptive, I'd just get punched in the nose. You know, if I let down the, if I let down the barrier, <laughs> there wouldn't be anything on the other side, or I would just get, you know, I'd suffer in some way. So we may have to gradually, gradually, gradually increase our faith until we're ready to be fully receptive. But at least do that. If we can have full faith in a moment, and then we get everything in a moment. And if we can't, then... But at least to be making progress in that direction, and to think about what, you know, what can I do in my life right now to make progress in that direction. So we have... Again, I'm in the temple room, so we'll have to stop as soon as the is open, but we can take questions or comments. So you're asking whether in the modes of goodness, passion, ignorance, you can't achieve Krishna's, Krishna Prema because... God's love supersedes all laws, right? Is that what you're saying? Is that correct? Did I get it right? Yes? So yes, that's true. Because in the mode of ignorance, that's where you're saying there's no God. I'm I'm just, you know, in this world for my own sense pleasure. And you're trying to get pleasure even by breaking the laws of God. You'll follow the laws of God if it serves you, and you'll break the laws of God if it serves you. You know, in the mode of ignorance, you might work at a job where you might be a thief. But you don't care about being a thief. And even at your, at your job, you might steal the pencils. You know, you, you'll do whatever's to your immediate advantage. That's the mode of ignorance. So then certainly you can't get... That problem set is abject darkness. In the mode of passion, that's where you have a mercantile relationship with God. You're a pious person, but you're a pious person because you want to get something. You're a religious person, but you have, you have something in mind that you want. Motive, you have ulterior motive. Yes. Matters. So in the mode of ignorance, you're doing the wrong thing for the wrong reason. You're doing sinful things for your own personal gratification. In the mode of passion, you're doing the right things. You're a pious person. But you're doing the right things for your own personal business. And therefore, you may give up piety also. In the mode of goodness, you're interested in liberation. You're interested in salvation. But it's also personally motivated. And above that is love, which love has, has no personal motivation other than the happiness of the beloved. So only above the mode of goodness. But the mode of goodness is the springboard. So once you become interested in following the laws of God for liberation, from that place you can much more easily go directly to love of God. Now bhakti is so amazing that you can go directly to love of God from the mode of ignorance. You do not have to go from ignorance to passion to goodness to love of God. That's the yoga ladder. You don't have to do that. You don't have to walk up the ladder. You can go up the elevator. So you can just go direct. You can go directly from being a sinful criminal to engaging in pure bhakti. You don't have to engage in, in mixed bhakti first. You don't have to do varnashram first. You don't have to be a pious person first. Is that okay? Yeah. Anybody else? Hi, Balpavu. I, I believe from hearing your talk that the thing that's holding me back is feeling worthy of, of having God's grace and mercy in my life. What can I do? Yeah, this feeling unworthy is, and therefore being unreceptive to grace is illusions perversion of humility so real humility 
is you feel totally unworthy but totally receptive. And it's so sweet. It's so sweet. I was talking about this the other day with humility, that if you get a gift that you didn't expect, you know, if, uh, the, the unexpected gift gives us actually much more happiness than something we purchased. When I purchase something, I feel very worthy of having that thing. Well, I earned the money and I paid for it. Yes? You go out to your job, you earn the money, you buy the whatever, you buy the shoes, and you have the shoes and you think, I earned these shoes. There's a certain amount of satisfaction. But you get a lot more satisfaction if you're thinking, boy, I'd really like a pair of shoes, but I don't have the money to pay for it. And then, you know, you go visit your friend and your friend says, you know, I found these shoes today and I was thinking of you and somehow I bought them. And you say, oh my God, that's exactly what I wanted. Isn't it more satisfaction when you haven't paid for them? So this concept of unworthiness in terms that, that, that's kind of a yucky thing. Like if you said to your friend, oh, I'm not worthy of a pair of shoes. That would damage your relationship with that friend, wouldn't it? That's not very nice. You know, like, like yesterday I was invited out, I was invited to dinner, and it was a really nice dinner. I made, they, they made this pumpkin seed rye bread that was amazing, and this pumpkin soup, and it was so good. I mean, if I had come there and said, well, I'm not good enough to eat this, I'm not going to eat it, they would have been offended. So a feeling of unworthiness in the sense that, wow, this meal is a lot nicer than I deserve. And then appreciating it is a source of love and a source of a loving relationship. But I'm not worthy of this meal, therefore I'm not going to eat it, is an insult. So if somebody wants to give you something that's better than you deserve, and you therefore appreciate it because it's better than you deserve, and you accept it because it's better than you deserve, and you therefore grow in love for the other person because it's better than you deserve, that's beautiful. But if because you think it's better than you deserve, you reject it and throw it in their face, so that's not going to be very helpful. So we should cultivate the kind of unworthiness, the kind of feeling of unworthiness that leads to love. We certainly don't want to have a mood of, I deserve, because that blocks love also. If you, if you have a relationship where you think, well, I deserve, I have the right to be treated like this, I have the right to be treated like that, then even if the person treats you nicely, you won't appreciate it. It'll never be enough. So we should think, I don't, I don't have the right to ask Krishna for love of God. I've, I've sinned against Krishna. And therefore, I, I am not worthy of being invited home. I am worthy of suffering my bad karma for millions and millions and millions of years. Therefore, I so much more appreciate and receive this love that Krishna is giving me. That's humility. You can see why we don't want to do this. Because that would imply how wonderful Krishna is, wouldn't it? Can, can, does that make, I hope that makes some sense to you. If we, use our unwor- if we use our unworthiness as a way to kick Krishna in the face, then that's not, that's not going to be helpful. But just, just meditate on that a minute. If we really see how unworthy I am and how great Krishna's gift is, and we receive that gift in love, that is perfect love and perfect humility. 
So what's really blocking us is not a feeling of unworthiness. What's really blocking us is a feeling of pride. I don't want to admit to you, Krishna, how unworthy I am. Okay, I'm willing to take your gift only if I think I've earned it. That, my friends, is not love. That's something quite different. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hermila Mataji, do you have a time to take a question from Mahalakshmi? I think so. Uh, the curtains may open in two minutes, but I think so. Go ahead, Mataji. Okay. What you were mentioning that the mercy of the Lord is all around us, and that even an ignorant person can get into the elevator, although the person may not see what is doing wrong. So, how do we get into that elevator? Okay, that you can see here in the end of the purport. And by the way, Haribo Mahalakshmi. My, my obeisances to you. Um, you can see that at the end of the purport, where Prabhupada's giving the example of the battlefield of Kurukshetra, he says, in the battlefield of Kurukshetra, all persons who died in the fight before the presence of the Lord got salvation without the necessary qualifications. So how can we get into that elevator? Just want to. It's just a matter of desire and willingness. Prabhupada would say over and over and over again, it's very simple, it's very simple. It's simple for the simple. It's just a matter of a moment. It's simple for the simple. So it's just wanting to. It's just being willing to. It's just being willing to pay whatever price is necessary, even if that price is going to include that I see that I'm an idiot. You know, why didn't I do this 10 million lifetimes ago? To just jump and say, Krishna, I, I, I want to fully and completely receive the love you have for me. I want to fully and completely love you, whatever the price may be. Now, I should say, though, don't say that insincerely, because if you say it insincerely, Krishna will show you that you're insincere. But then you can say, I'd like to come to the point where I can ask for that. Krishna, please bring me to the point where I can ask for that sincerely. And then trust that he'll help you. And trust that whatever comes your way is help. Trust that, you know, the difficult things that come your way are also part of the help. It looks like we have about 30 more seconds before you have to stop because reading is easy. So I just wanted to remind everyone that Mother Ermila is...